We're going to begin reading from verse 25. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10 and verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbors thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willingly to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is amazing. It's wonderful. It's precious. And we love your word. And now, Father, we pray that you would settle our hearts, our minds, to be able to listen, to hear, to understand, and to receive. Father, we think of the people that are here, and the many have come out on a warm evening, and a holiday time, and we ask you to bless each and every head and home that is represented. But Father, above all things, we pray that if there be one that is unsaved or away from Christ, We pray tonight that you would speak to their hearts. We pray tonight that you would draw them by thy spirit. And Lord, that you would bring them to the cross under the blood of the Lamb. Father, tonight, may Christ alone be seen. May Christ alone be exalted. May your word alone be heard and not the voice of man. Glorify your Son in this place this evening. We ask it in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The parable that we have read, the parable that we have read is known as the parable of the good Samaritan because he does good. Simple. But there is a lawyer of the law has come really to try and to trick the Lord Jesus to see what he would do with the law, to see what he would think of God's law And he comes with a different motive in mind. Even in our reading, it tells us that this man, 
he was, if anything, trying to justify himself. Trying to make himself justified as if he was worthy of the kingdom of God, as if he was worthy of salvation, as if he was better than others. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan may be called that, but the Bible doesn't actually call it the Good Samaritan or call this man the Good Samaritan. The Bible actually calls him a certain Samaritan. A certain Samaritan. And so this evening, the title of our message is The Curse, The Christ, and The Cure on the Jericho Road. The Curse, The Christ, and The Cure on the Jericho Road. Now this parable is about this man who is on the Jericho Road and he falls among thieves and he is beaten and left for half dead. Half dead. And of course a priest comes and a Levite comes and they don't help him. And of course then the, the, the surface reading of it is that this Samaritan comes along and does good, hence he's the good Samaritan. And while the moral of the story is to do good and to help one another, our, our fellow uh, citizens, as it were, and even brothers and sisters in the faith, and while that's the, the, the surface teaching of it, there's a lot more that's a lot deeper in this parable. And this evening, with God's help, we are going to look at it. First of all, I want to look at the background of this question that has come to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this lawyer want? What is it he's actually trying to do? And where does he come from in his own mind, his thinking and in his heart? So he confronts the Lord Jesus. And he's a man who is well versed and rehearsed in the Mosaic law. But also he is a man who holds mostly to rabbinical Talmudic teaching. In other words, this man is more concerned about the outward appearance of than the law of the Lord and the inward man and the inward person for the inward heart. For example, in Matthew chapter 23, the Lord Jesus gives what is known as the eight woes, the eight woes to Jerusalem and the Pharisaical religion in Jerusalem. And he speaks to the apostate, even antichrist system, the establishment there. And this is what he says in Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you paid tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a knot and swallow a camel. What Christ is saying here is this, that that which was to be the true religion of Israel was now apostatized, and now that he has come, they have missed him, has become antichrist. Eight woes are given in the chapter. You can mark it and read it when you maybe go home for this evening. And notice here, the humanist ideology had come in to religion. The humanist ideology is this, that it is centered on man. It's man-centric. That religion was focused on what man could do, and not only what man could do, but focused on what man liked, 
what man preferred and what man had thought. Instead of it being human reaching centered on God, centered on Christ, rather it was human endeavor to see what they liked, thought, and did. It was a humanistic religion which had formed out of it. An outward professing religion and not an inward possessing religion. Now, if you think this is very strange, if you think that this is, would people really turn like that? The country that we live in today is full of it. Full of men and women who think because of religion, ritual, ceremony, and all the pomp that goes with it, surely this must be right. And they may even profess to be a Christian of some shade or of some type, but they don't possess Christ within them. They do not possess the Lord Jesus Christ and they do not know him as their own Lord and personal Savior. Our land, our country, and our nation is full of people like this. This was for the glory of man and not for the glory of God. So will you turn with me, please, for a few moments to the little book, The Prophecy of Micah. The Prophecy of Micah, please. And we're going to go to chapter 6, Micah 6, and we're going to read from verse 6. And keeping this in mind about this lawyer that has come. Micah 6 and verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and by myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Notice here, you might say, what has that got to do with this Pharisee coming to the Lord Jesus? Because this Pharisee is exactly like the days of Micah. In other words, Micah was in the 8th century B.C., a prophet in the 8th century B.C. The house of Israel in the northern kingdom were carried away captive, and now the house of Judah alone are left in the southern kingdom. And what has happened is he has been seeing much of these things that are happening, coming again in the nation that already happened, the sin and the idolatry that carried away the house of Israel. And now the, the Assyrians had taken them away and encroached on the border of the house of Judah and carried away the 46 fenced cities or fortified towns along the very border between them. Came right to the gates, as it were, of Jerusalem and only a deliverance from God changed their very destiny. Changed everything in Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters, this evening, I don't know how much you see. We're preaching week in, week out. I don't know how much you realize, and I hope and I pray you do. But save the Lord Jesus Christ come to this little province of ours. 
And see if he bring revival blessing and ministry through the preaching of the word. And see if the Holy Ghost come in great power and glory and stir many hearts, regenerate many people and quicken many spirits. We are doomed in our land. Our nation, Ulster, has got worse. Evangelical Ulster has died because of the sin and the idolatry among the people. We need God to move in Holy Ghost power. Notice here, Micah has seen this, and he's actually a contemporary uh, through some of the years of the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Hosea, and even Amos. So in Micah 6 and verse 6, it seems as if there's, this is a lovely, just a lovely portion of Scripture, and it seems, well, we'll read this, and, you know, we can just glance over it, and we understand, you know, what we're meant to do. But let me read it the way it is, read, it is read in the original text in the tense that it is said in the original text. For example, Micah 6 and verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord? Now, Micah is asking the Lord because things are happening. They need a mighty move of God. And the idea in the tense of the Hebrew it's written in, it, it comes actually with a bitterness. Micah is asking this, he is proxy, as it were, standing in, as it were, a day's man between the house of Judah at this point and the Lord. And here standing between them, he comes with a voice, with a cry, with the motive, listen, of bitterness. You don't re- seem to read it in our English, but in the Hebrew, this is the way it reads. It's a question asked out of resentment that even God's people are starting to be bitter in their hearts and they have resentment toward God for certain things that may have happened. In our nation, there's resentment toward God even from those who don't believe in God. Resentment and bitterness has clouded the hearts and the heads and the minds of many men and women. Not only outside that is in the unsaved world, but also even in the church. Surely God doesn't mean what he says in some places of scripture. Surely God cannot mean this. And so they try to doctor the word. They try to modernize the word. They try to disprove the word so as they don't upset their congregation and the world outside. Brothers and sisters, in the word of God, God says what he means and he means what he says. He means what he says. This is a question asked out of bitterness and resentment. Notice verse seven here. He says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10 thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my womb? Now, as you see, whenever this is being carried on from this bitterness and resentment, it's a cry going out. In other words, you know what they're asking? Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? What do you want from us? That's the idea of this. And we do see and hear nice posts and some on the the, the walls of, or on the boards on trees, nailed to trees, maybe in country roads, and, and maybe even 
on social media in verse 8. He has shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And that's true, and that's right. And we seem to, it's a beautiful saying, that's not the idea of it, but. And brothers and sisters, we must get this into us, that God is love, but love is not all that God is. For God is love, but God has wrath. And our God is angry with our land. Even they're saying, should I give the fruit of my womb? The fruit of the womb is being given enough in us there. They used to sacrifice it onto Molech in the northern kingdom because of the idolatry come in, because of the false gods and the heathen gods. And so they started to not only worship the one true living God, but they started to walk away from him, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they started to look to the other gods. You know why? Do you know why men and women love it to have maybe a little religion, but we leave God at church? And they tell us, even Christian politicians, they say, leave God at your home or in your church and don't bring him to work with you. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Leaving God at home is like cutting off your head and trying to walk without it. If you're a believer, if you're a born-again Christian, if you're a born-again politician, if you're a born-again school teacher, if you're a born-again nurse, if you're a born-again doctor, if you're born again, no matter what your profession is, you cannot leave Christ at home. He's in you. You must serve him as you're led. And hence the resentment and the bitterness comes up in those who have been the blood and the book, as we have said this morning. Oh, the blood in the book, but when it comes down to it and it's all boiled down to the one level, I'll tell you what happens. Those who would say that never, never, never suddenly go, okay, okay, okay. I will capitulate because maybe God didn't mean what he said. The word of God is forever settled in heaven. And you and I cannot add to, take away, nor try to modernize the word of God. Listen, Israel cries out, wherewith shall I come before the Lord? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? And in fact, some of the Hebrew writers say, it gives the idea behind this. You're unreasonable, God. To ask this of me, you're unreasonable. What do you want from me? Gods of Molech, they used to heat the, the, the statue of Molech, stand with his arms like this. And they used to stuff it full of combustibles and heat it until it was glowing red. And they'd have brought some of their firstborn and laid it on top of it and scalded it alive onto a foreign, foreign god. Onto a foreign god. And so they're saying, is this what you want? Brothers and sisters, it may not be exactly the same way that it has happened in the Scripture, but I can see it all over Ulster, all over the United Kingdom. It's in Ireland, it's in America, it's in Canada, that things are getting worse and they're getting worse and they're getting worse. And people think it's God who is unreasonable. God hasn't changed. We have. Our laws have. We must look here at what the Lord is saying. First of all, Bruce Waltke, he's a reformed professor of theology and scripture and 
uh, in the Hebrew. Listen to what he says here. Blinded to God's goodness and character, he reasons with his own depraved frame of reference. He need not change. God must change. His willingness to raise the price does not reflect his generosity, but avails a complaint that God demands too much. In other words, what he is saying is this. He's saying, God, you're not being reasonable. He's coming from a depraved, carnal human nature. He's coming from that depraved, carnal human nature to the point where he's saying, you know, I can't change, so God, you change. Brothers and sisters, in all honesty, could you, with all conviction of heart, could you live with trying to change God's word when you know it's us that needs to change? But God's this and God that. He was unreasonable. He let me down. Things were too difficult. Things were too hard. And I was upset. And, and I understand all of those. We're human. That's our depraved frame. We need to see past it as believers. And we need to rest ourselves in the sovereignty of God. In Micah 6 and verse 8. He hath shown thee. O man, what is good? Now, see the way this reads. It gives the idea that God stops the shouting of the angry defendant from a witness box. That's the idea in the original text. So in other words, when we're reading this and we have verse 7, and we come into the end of verse 7, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my, of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, you're unreasonable. Is this what you want from me? What do you want, Lord? Shouting and bitter and resentful and angry against God. And the idea is in the witness box, the judge slams down the mallet. Silence in court! And hence he reads the verse. For he has showed thee, O ma'am. So it reads, God has showed you. You don't need to ask. Go read the word. Go read the word. Here's the idea of many believers reading the word. Okay, so, Lord, I need you to speak to me on a certain subject. Judas went and hanged himself. No, that's not it. Oh, no, I don't like that one. Hence, brothers and sisters, David Guzik said, that this shows God stops a shouting angry defendant from the witness box. It doesn't matter how much as a nation, as a people, as a church, as a Christian, that we kick and squeal against God and the, our, our shins are sore kicking against the pricks as Paul did. The goads were the pricks against. They were bars along with, they had the oxen in frame and harness pulling for the plow. And if they tried to move or get out of the way and tried to pull too much to the left or right, these bars hit against their shins and it got them back in for they felt the pain of it. And the Lord Jesus says, Paul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
And of course, Paul, we know, he says, Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He says, You're like the oxen and you keep kicking against it and you think I'm unreasonable. And here this man of the law knows this. This man of the law comes to Christ. And let me read verse 8, what he says. So he is a, as a, he's God stopping the shouting of an angry defendant from the witness box. He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee. See what doth the Lord require of thee. It gives the idea, I told you before, don't have me tell you again. This is God saying this. I've told you before. Am I speaking to someone you've been in a meeting before and you've backslidden? You're far away from God. If you tell me one more time, he says, I've told you before. Somebody not saved, somebody not saved, and you've sat in meetings and the Lord has told you through the preaching of the word that you're not saved, you're not right with him, you need to be born again. And he goes, well, if he tells me one more time, I've told you before, I won't tell you again, he says. Maybe there's a Christian here and you've said, Lord, I don't want to do that. Tell me something else. He says, I've told you before. I go and do. Brothers and sisters, the Lord then lays it out, but to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Israel's sin brought about their judgment. And the sin of our land will bring about ours. The sin of our land will bring about ours. Jesus said, woe eight times to these Pharisees. It's the same sort of tense. Woe unto you. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Eight times. And of course, the temple was torn down and they crucified the Lord. In Matthew 23 and verse 24, he mentions straining at a knot, G-N-A-T in our English, a knot and swallowing a camel. Do you know why he mentioned that? Because it showed the heart of the man. The heart of the men of the Pharisees, you see, they were so religiously bound up and tied up in things that they used to get a, a, a linen gauze. And even if they were drinking from the, from the vine, they used to put it, over a vessel and stretch the linen gauze over it, the cleanest that they could make it and pour it over just in case, and this is true, just in case a fly or some unclean insect fell into the wine. You see, if I take that insect, I mustn't be saved. But if I take that insect out, oh, sure, I'm saving myself. That's their ideology. Brothers and sisters, they used to strain it out so what was the knot, the little insect. He says, you're afraid of swallowing a knot more than you are of keeping the law of God. And of course, he then gives them a camel from the smallest to the greatest of animals there. If you're looking for a reference to that, by the way, you'll find it in Leviticus chapter 11. Verses 20, 23, 41, and 42. Now, in Luke chapter 10, we have this lawyer approach the Lord Jesus Christ. What shall I do? I've done everything. I even stretch this out and pour out the wine. That he, not even a fly, not even a little unclean fly 
some little gnat animal has went into my body. Aren't I so good? Brothers and sisters, there's none good. No, not one. There's none that understandeth and seeketh God, the scriptures tell us. And this man is coming and saying, aren't I good? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus challenges him in verse 26, what is written in the law? How readest thou? What do you see in the law? Because Jesus wasn't seeing what they were seeing. He wasn't seeing what they were seeing. And so the discourse follows from verses 27 to 29 that man is full of legalism and self-justification and so he is eternally lost. Eternally lost. This man does not understand even with his great intellect the much learning and doing the need of regeneration. He doesn't know about it. The need of regeneration. The need of the gift of repentance unto life. And what he is missing is the importance of the realm of the soul and the spirit. He's more worried about the outward appearance. But if your soul and your spirit is right, in other words, if it's saved, then all of you is right. Then all of you is right. Hence the parable known as the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, verse 30, if you'll turn with me, please. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 30, we have, first of all, a certain man. Speaking of him, of this man who goes to uh, Jericho, a certain man. In verse 31, we have a certain priest. A certain priest. In verse 32, we have a certain Levite. And in verse 33, we have a certain Samaritan. A certain man, a certain priest, a certain Levite, a certain Samaritan. So let's look at this for a moment. The certain man, now the deeper, there's a deeper meaning of this. This man who goes on the road to Jericho, this man, is representative in parable form of the nation of Israel. This man represents not only that, but the personal man and woman and their faith in Christ and their walk before Christ comes into the life. Traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's about 18 to 20 miles from one to the other. Jerusalem is the city of God and Jericho is the city which was accursed. For example, in Joshua 6 and verse 26, it says, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth up this city, Jericho. So it was an accursed city before God. And this man in the parable is leaving the city of God, Jerusalem, and going to the accursed city of Jericho. Jerusalem is also known as the city of peace. And Jericho is the city of palms or the city, city of roses, but it's also known as the city of the moon. The moon God. For example, in Joshua 10 and verse 13, 
We remember the story that the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people avenged themselves upon their enemies. Here the rising of the sun in the east at the very morning star, as it's known, the first glint that went right across the earth, it shone right into the, to the temple. Hence, when the Lord Jesus was on the cross dying, he couldn't have been at Gordon's Calvary. He couldn't have been at where now is the, what do you call it, Jennifer, the, city, the, the Roman Catholic Church is, the, the Holy Sepulchre. Around that area, it couldn't have, Calvary couldn't have been there. Calvary, I believe, was the Mount of Olives. Because the Mount of Olives is on the east. The temple faced the east. The great curtain was facing the east for the rising of the sun, the city of the Son of God or of the glory of God. And hence, the day star would come up and shoot across the very uh, plains and the, the countries right across to the temple. Jesus on the cross had to be at the east to be looking west to see the curtain rent from the top to the bottom. He had to be looking that way to cry, it is finished, whenever the curtain was rent from the top to the bottom and a new and living way was made through the blood of Christ in the presence of God. He had to be further east. And so the sun came to shine on, on Jerusalem, to shine on the, the temple. The temple was ornate. There was golden doors. It was, it was beautiful. It was, uh, there was white... Uh, polished stones around it. And when the, the, the sun came up, it was a city as it were on a hill which couldn't be hid. And it shone for miles. But the Jews started to worship the temple. The temple, the temple, the temple of the Lord, they cried. As if salvation was in the brick and mortar. But God dwelleth not in temples made with hands, brothers and sisters. He dwells in the temple of his people who are saved. I take note of this. Jerusalem and Jericho. I want to show you the trail that they go down. Jerusalem, if you look at a map, and I put a map up here for you, you see Jerusalem further south here and Jericho on up. And it looks like you're going up to Jericho because you're looking on a flat map, but it isn't. If you turn that map around and you had all of the hills, Jerusalem's on the hill sea level would be here and Jericho would be away down here. In other words, if you channeled away through the land, the water would flow right in and just engulf Jericho. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is 825 feet below sea level. So it's 3,325 feet between the heights of the both of them. Going down. Why do you think Jesus says, and a man going down to Jerusalem? He was going down, descending on the road from Jerusalem, pardon me, to Jericho. So Jesus got it right. And notice here, he would have passed the Mount of Olives. Now Christ is telling us this. Christ is talking about this. He would have passed, passed the Mount of Olives. And looking back, as I said, would be the view of the Temple Mount area and the great temple on it. Then on his travels, as he goes on around, Bethany's a couple of miles around the corner. And then farther on to their descent downwards right into Jericho. And this man on this road started out to go to Jericho. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho in verse 30. And brothers and sisters, 
the depravity of our human nature will always gravitate downwards. The depravity of our human nature will always gravitate downwards. What do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. If you take a car to the top of the hill outside here, and you just took it out of gear and you let off the handbrake, what's it going to do? Naturally, it declines, declines down the hill. It runs down the hill. Such is the, the depravity of human nature. We have the total and complete inability to save ourselves. And here in national aspect of it, Israel were gone. And that which was left of Judah at the time of Christ, what happened? They went the same way, crucifying Christ. The depravity of our human nature will always gravitate downwards. And how many have walked, listen, how many believers, how many Christians have walked, as it were, from the city of God, from the presence of the Lord? How many have left and, as it were, walked past that place known as Gethsemane? Walked past the place where Christ sweat, as it were, great drops of blood? How many of us have walked past? How many people have left Christ and the heavenly Jerusalem and walked down that road of Jericho, the cursed way, and their old flesh, their old man, their old woman, their old nature, their depravity has loved it so, and they have been going in declension day after day after day, walking further and further away with each and every step. Am I speaking to someone, and this is how you've went? Am I speaking to someone, and this is how you have gone? And listen, brothers and sisters, we, we think that we'll always be able to just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we'll be all right. But you tell that to the thousands of Christians in Ulster who are living away from God. Thousands of them. How many have walked away from the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and have passed, as it were, the Mount of Olives in the Christ there, Christ and his agonies? And when you read the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ, he went a little further and he fell on his face, being in an agony. In other words, it gives the idea like this. He fell and he got up. And he fell and he got up. And he fell and he got up. And he kept falling and getting up and falling and getting up and falling again on his face, his beautiful face, and getting up. Why? Because of the weight of the sin that was yours and mine. Because of what lay ahead of him. Calvary, what lay ahead of him. The torture and the bloody mess that he would become on the cross. He fell and he got up and the Greek uh, tense is an improper verb meaning it happened over and over and over and over and over and over again and again. And Christ kept struggling to get up and he felt even death was encompassing him in the garden and he had to make it to the cross. He had to get to Calvary. Calvary. 
And we have walked by Gethsemane sometimes. The place where Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, was in an agony. So then he wondered the hymn writer wrote, King of my life, I cry in thee now. Thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn-crowned bride. Lead me to Calvary, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. And so off the road, past Calvary, away from the heavenly Jerusalem, and many have walked by the Garden of Gethsemane. It means in Gethsemane, it means a place of the olive press. That's the idea of it. And God's olive press, his beautiful olive of his son, was, as it were, put into the press, and, and he was pressed down until he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling upon the ground. Christ went into God's olive press. And many have walked past the the place of the oil, the place of the blood, Calvary, Gethsemane. How many have walked away and journeyed down to the Jericho Road, to Bethany? You know something about Bethany? Bethany is called the house of dates. That's what it means, or the house of miseries. It's two meanings. And the reason it was called that, you see, do you remember when the woman came and broke the alabaster box over our Lord and uh, Judas Iscariot was saying this could have been sold for so many pence and given to the poor. And he says, the poor you have with you always. Remember that in the scriptures? Do you know why he said that? Because there was a great big poor house in Bethany in that little village where he was staying. He says, the poor you have with you always. It's just like he's talking to this man who comes to him and he tells him the parable of the man on the Jericho Road. What can I do? I do. And that's why the Lord said, the poor you have with you always. Bethany was the place where he went to sleep at night. Bethany was the house where Simon the leper was there. Bethany was the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, whom he raised from the dead. And in Luke 24 and verse 50, it says, And as he led them out as far as to Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them and parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Do you know what we've looked at on this road so far? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the ascension. And many are walking away from the heavenly city, thinking they're doing good, they're going to go well with it. They're going down in the, the road to Jericho, to the place of the curse. They're walked away from God, no longer to serve him. So in Luke chapter 10 and verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Nationally speaking, ancient Israel fell among thieves. He had 
the carrying away, as I spoke earlier, of the Assyrians, then you had the Babylonians, then you had the Medo-Persians, then you had Alexander the Greek uh, and the Grecians, then you had the pagan Roman Empire until AD 70 and Titus. And so we find that they were among thieves, battered and bruised and left half dead. Wandering in their sin and their transgressions further and further away from God, from home and from their heritage, lost and undone and now used and abused by thieves as this man was. And so was every one of us, individually speaking. Every single one of us were used and abused by the things of this world, by the sin of this world. The sin, the idolatry, the wickedness in our nation today has seen us travel down this dangerous Jericho road from a global conspiracy of elitists and communists and Marxists to try and control us, to try and control us. Rob us of our freedoms. Rob us of our liberties. Rob us of our heavenly and divine blessings from God, from our Christian and Israelite heritage and our inheritance. To rob us of our faith and our practice and our worship. Mass and illegal immigration lobbyist demands at the cost of our biblical faith and doctrine. We are like the man on the road to Jericho. We have come among thieves, or rather thieves have attacked and come among us. We are left bleeding and dying on the Jericho road. Our nation and much of the church is as this certain man who has fell among these thieves. In verse 31, it says, a certain priest, much of the religious leaders, in other words, a certain priest will do nothing. He passes on the other side. And listen, brothers and sisters, in today's religious world, they don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't want the hassle, the trouble. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to step out of line. You know why? Because a lot of them, I didn't know this until recently, a lot of them are being paid through COVID. A lot have been paid money through COVID. I wondered why the government kept sending me text messages saying you need money because you are as self-employed through COVID. And I says, no, I don't. I don't want your money. Not if you're going to rule me and rule us. We only have one head. He's called the Lord Jesus Christ. The church only has one head and we only have one king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many don't want the hassle. The people are looking for help, but it'll take a fearless man. It'll take a fearless man to hang around when there's robbers. 
It'll take a fearless man to hang around when there's dangers. It'll take a fearless man to stand up and say, I'll come because I want to help. But the priest stepped over to the other side and off he went. Where's the voice of the leading church? Is it just me? Where's the voice of the denominations? Where's the outcry? Where's the outcry? Why we're left bleeding and dying on a Jericho road, a road of curse and hell. Notice here, there are certain things, certain events and happenings in life which are unsightly. Listen, unsightly, difficult, challenging, and even sickening and threatening. I'm talking about real stuff. Real life crises, muck and dirt sort of stuff. There are people out there, and if they come in, some churches, not into here, we won't have it in here. But if they come into some churches, some people will get up and move to the other side of the church. Oh, we don't want the likes of that person in here. Listen, do you see every single one of you, including this man? We're all sinners saved by grace. If John the Baptist walked into many churches that run out the, the back door, real stuff, real life, real muck and dirt, blood and guts type of thing, you know, and the church has become so mealy-mouthed and the church has become so, you know, let's not do too much that might upset people. Let's become more politically correct. And brothers and sisters, I'm not politically correct. I want to be publicly correct. We can be politically correct at the expense of the Word of God. But as we said from the book of Micah, what do you want from us, Lord? That's what they're saying. Look, it's hard down here. It's difficult here, Lord. I'm getting it in the knack, Lord. I'm getting it in the knack from all the government issues and all their demands and all of these things. I'm getting it in the knack from the world and everyone and sundry who sees me. I'm getting it in the knack. What do you want from me? He says, walk according to my word. Walk, brothers and sisters, in spite of the world. In spite of them. Most of the lovely, self-absorbed, professing Christians, the rose-tinted glasses type, the self-righteous will pass on the other side like this priest when the world is going to hell in a handcart. They're telling us now to say Jesus is the only way to the Father. That Jesus is the only way to heaven could get you arrested because it's hate speech against other religions. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only way. He is the only way. And likewise, the Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. So he does the same. George Williams in his commentary writes, selfishness is the commanding force in human nature. Compassionate feelings without practical actions are worthless. And he's saying this, that this man, this Levite, 
passes over the other side. See, under the first covenant, the sinner had to cooperate with God. And such cooperation demanded outlay and activity, just as the Levite did in the temple. He had to lay things ready for the high priest to come. He had to serve. But they also administered. They were administrators for the government. They were also administrators for the government. And this man could do nothing in his helpless state. And the first covenant of the question could be asked. You ready? From the first covenant, the question could be asked. What can man do for God? What do you want from us, Lord? You're going back to this. What do you want? But under the second covenant, the question changes to, what has God done for man? In other words, Christ has done it all. And hence we come to the certain Samaritan. The certain Samaritan came. I love this, verse 33. Let's read it, please. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. The certain Samaritan came where he was. Now listen. He didn't say, fix yourself up there and get yourself right. Look at the state of your land there, bleeding all over the road. He didn't say, I want to make sure you get your ducks in order here before I come back again, because look at the state of you. He didn't say, do this, that, or the other. The man couldn't. He was half dead. He was half dead. But rather, it says, he came to where he was. I never forget the night I was saved. And boy, did I need him. Friday in court. Got in trouble for fighting in the court. Then released. Drinking and drugs in Shabin's the whole weekend. Couldn't have told you my name. And the sun comes up in the Sunday morning and I'm walking to stay in a friend's house and in my head it was, I can't do this anymore. I wanted to live but I had no strength to live. I had nothing left in me to live and I went and I says, now go here, I'm going to see if I can take any more. I was full of drinking drugs for days. I'm going to kill myself. I've had enough. I was on the Jericho road. Cursed without Christ. The curse of the law was on me. I don't remember anything. Remember the sun on my face and remember hearing my feet in the ground. And next thing I knew, people were around me trying to bring me round. And someone that was there, a lady called Margaret says, I can't really remember it all, but he's coming round. And next thing I knew, they were asking me to go to a gospel meeting. I thought, get me an ambulance, I'm so sick. I don't know if it done anything or I had enough in my system. I don't know. But I can tell you something. I was on the Jericho Road. I was well in the Jericho. In fact, I was in Jericho City. I was cursed. And I can't even remember how I got there. I remember sitting in a car with this woman's husband, Eddie. Eddie Anderson driving me. I remember getting in and hearing voices in my head and squealing at me. And demons tell me to run out. 
I was half dead. Half dead. Full life behind me of shame. And I heard the gospel. God loved me so much. He's put obstacles in my road to stop me going to hell. Pastor James McConnell preached Christ and the cross. Well, by faith I saw him. And the next thing I knew, I was receiving him. And I was saved that night. And I can tell you in the grace of God, I've never took another drug. I was with counselors and drug addiction counselors, the doctors. They were wanting me to put me away and everything to try and get me somewhere to drive and I wouldn't go. And I can tell you from that night, I knew something happened in me. And I seen the Lamb of God. And I cried for mercy that night. And that night when I cried for mercy to this very moment, I can tell you, I've never touched an alcoholic drop. And I can tell you something else. This Jericho Road where he found me, the thieves had left me half dead. And he poured in the oil and the wine. He poured in the oil and the wine. He came to where I was. Christian, you're saved. If you're saved, do you understand that? You get that, don't you? He came to where you were. I found Jesus. No, you did not indeed. You were dead. He found you. Lost sheep. He came to me. He came to me when I couldn't come to where he was. He came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I couldn't come to where he was, he came to me. He came in compassion and not in condemnation. The Jerry Corolla was treacherous. It was known as a thieves' highway and a robber's paradise. The road of death, it was called. And while some may have thought, oh, see those criminals there. Let's stay away from the Jericho Road. That's what's wrong with our land tonight. The criminals are now in the open. That which is evil is good, and that which is good is evil. We find ourselves on the Jericho Road with thieves and robbers have broken in. 
Some commentators think that these thieves were at least two. Plural, so at least two. Some commentators tend to think that Jesus knew who these thieves were as he spoke about them because he would be crucified between two. One on the left hand and one on the right. I don't know. I don't know. Because when you look at the kingdoms in national Israel, how they'd been under the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and so on, you understand that there are maybe more. So he had compassion. I'm closing. He had compassion on him. And he came and poured in the oil and the wine. Do you know in this parable, I'll do it another time, it speaks of the second coming of Christ. I'll do this in finishing. So he brings him, puts him on his bees and he brings him to a house, an innkeeper and he brings them there. And in other words, you know, sheep need to be penned, brothers and sisters, and people need somewhere to worship. They need to be under a head and a covering. And he gives the innkeeper two pence. Two pence. And so when he gives him the two pence, he says, when, when I come again, if I owe you aught, I will repay you to the innkeeper. And brothers and sisters, in Matthew 20, when you go home, read about it. The, the Lord speaks of the parable of those who are employed a penny a day. So it's a penny a day. Two pence would be two days. Second Peter 3 and 8, he says, a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So two days are two thousand years. And Jesus says here, there's two pence. Now you look after them. You look after them sheep. As one was told to look after me and when I come again, if I owe you any extra than two days, two pennies worth, he says, you'll get your reward. You'll get your reward. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you, how are we for the coming of the Lord? How are you? Is there someone here and you're not saved tonight? And you're away from Christ. And you're on the Jericho Road, friend. You're under the curse of the law. The place of the curse. And maybe you've walked away from God. And you need to find your way back to the city of God. Christ is the only way.